Well, good morning and greetings in Jesus' name. It's good to be here again this morning. I see a few visitors. Welcome. Good to have you here. Hope you can worship with us here this morning. I don't know about you, but I'm thoroughly enjoying the new songbook, and I just want to say thank you to those that made that happen. Really appreciated that and enjoying that. Also want to say thank you for those number of you gave us gifts in the last month here. Uh, the youth had a unique way of giving a gift this, this year. Uh, we had a number of gifts in a box, and we were only allowed to open one per day. And uh, it's kind of hard for children to do, to open one per day, but it's also hard for big people to do that. And so that was, uh, I, we enjoyed that, and it, it uh, made for some interesting times opening those up periodically, so thank you for your thoughtfulness with that. I want to take some time here and look at the story of what is known as the prodigal son, and what Marcus read there in Luke chapter 15, you can stay there. He read the first 10 verses, which is kind of the backdrop to this story. Jesus tells three parables, three stories in rapid succession, one right after the other, as we see here in the context. We'd like to look at the story of the prodigal son, or the lost son, found in verses 11 through 31. Now, there's three main characters in this story. It's a story that um, you've probably read from little up. There's Bible story books with this story. It's a very, uh, very commonly known story. Three characters. There's the father, the younger son, and the older son. And these three characters, if you were to just read this story and not have the rest of scripture. There's so much in this story. There's so much um, that Jesus explains about us and about God, about mankind and about God in this story, um, that if that's all you had, you would know a lot about man and about God. And so we're going to explore this over a period of three sermons. Today we're going to look particularly at the prodigal younger brother. Next sermon, we'll look at the loving father, and the final sermon, we'll look at the older brother. So let's look at the prodigal younger brother, and this story, like I mentioned, is commonly called the prodigal son. And I wonder how many of you, off the top of your head, would know what prodigal means. What does prodigal mean? Anybody off the top of your head? Say it again. Lost? Returned? Well, I didn't know, and so I looked it up because I was really curious. We don't see that word anywhere in Scripture that I'm aware of. Uh, it's something that we've kind of imposed onto the story over time. Uh, and so I looked it up, and I assumed that it meant something along the lines of what you all said. You know, someone that sows their wild oats and then comes back and repents, or someone who learns their lesson and returns. But it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, this word doesn't have any positive connotation. We might look at it and think the prodigal son, well, that's positive, he returned. It has no positive connotation at all. Rather, the word is completely negative. It means spending money or resources recklessly or being wastefully extravagant. So, you know, this is that person, and I'm guessing that all of us can picture that person. That person that has more money than brains, maybe it's been said. A person that has nice things or new vehicles, but you know that they can't afford it. 
a person who uses their money to buy friends or to buy freedom from the law or perhaps even to try to buy happiness, although we all know that those are things that money cannot actually buy. A person that uses money to their advantage and uses you as a result of that. So let's not think for a moment that this is a positive word. We could probably better name this story or this parable the wasteful son or the extravagant son or the irresponsible son, the reckless son or the self-indulgent son would probably be a better way to term this story. Not someone that you would want your daughter to marry or someone to have for your best friend. The story has also been titled The Lost Son. And I understand why, because it fits neatly into the other two parables here. There's the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and then the parable of the lost son. But again, that title doesn't do justice to what happened here. In the story of the sheep found in verses 1 through 7 of Luke 15 that Marcus read, it seems like, we don't know this for sure, but it seems like the sheep just foolishly wandered off. And then in the story of the lost coin found in verses 8 through 10, the coin was lost, but coins don't lose themselves. And so this coin was lost at no fault of its own. But in the story of the prodigal son that we'll look at today, the son knew full well what he was doing, and he deliberately left the safety of home and rebelled against his father. So I'd like to call this story this morning, the story of the rebellious, self-indulgent son. And I want to look at uh, Luke chapter 15, where we'll read verses 11 through uh, 19. 11 through 19 is what we'll look at today. Luke 15, verse 11, and he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, took his journey to a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And that's where we're going to stop today. So I want to look back a bit and get a little bit of context for this parable, these, these three parables that are together here in Luke chapter 15. In verses 1 and 2, we get a little bit of an, of an indication why Jesus told these parables in, in this chapter. And I'm just going to read those verses again just to remind us what it says there. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners, and eateth with them. So these are the publicans, the tax collectors, and sinners. These are the despised people the bad people, the scum of society, you might say, the people that took advantage of others. 
and they were hanging around Jesus. And that upset the Pharisees and the scribes. Why would Jesus, who, came to be, who claimed to be spiritual, who claimed to be God, why would he hang out with these people? Didn't he know who they were or what they had done? And they muttered to themselves. It says they murmured in the King James Version how Jesus welcomes sinners and even eats with them. And so Jesus tells these three parables we can see in rapid succession, one right after the, the other. And I, I'm imagining that he says one right after the other without time for comment, without time for feedback, just goes one right into the other. The parable of the lost sheep is the first one in which the shepherd leaves the 99 good sheep and searches far and wide for the one sheep that had wandered off. The parable of the lost coin in which the woman goes to great length seeking the one lost coin out of ten. And in both stories, Jesus ends it by, by saying how heaven rejoices over one sinner that repents or one sinner that returns. And then following those two stories, we have the story of the prodigal son. Now, I want to break down just a bit for us here what the younger son actually did. I believe that Jesus was very deliberate in the setting of the story, the characters that he chose, and the actions of each character. These, this is an incredibly packed, full story that has a lot that we can learn from. Notice that he chose the younger son in this story to be the prodigal. And I'm, I'm going to paint with broad brush strokes here for a minute. But generally, the oldest child in the family is more cautious, conscientious, and hardworking. And I say that that's very generally, not nearly every time. That's my perception. You might have a different idea. But that's my perception when I read this story. Okay, this makes sense. The older brother, he's more cautious. He's more conscientious. He's hardworking. Okay, this makes sense. And I'm going to say, generally speaking, the youngest child tends to be spoiled and less serious. And I, I know I, I'm painting with broad strokes here, and I, but I'm allowed to say this because I am a youngest. And so I can say, I guess, what I want about the youngest child. But I believe that Jesus did this deliberately and intently. Jesus selects the youngest as the prodigal and the oldest as the obedient son. But I want to look here again at the context at the start of this story. The younger son comes to his father and asks him for the portion of the goods that fall to me. Or we might say, my share of the estate or my inheritance. Now, fathers, think, think about that for a moment. I don't know how old he was. Maybe he was 20, maybe he was 25. In our context today, that those are maybe the kind of the ages that might make sense here, somewhere between 18 and 25. What would you do if your 25-year-old son would come to you and say, I want my inheritance? I mean, you might first of all say, well, you don't know what that is, right? We don't, as children, we don't know what, if anything, our parents will give us as an inheritance. But in this time it was very clear what the inheritance was going to be. So that, that might be the first thing that you would say. You don't know what I'm planning to give you even. What, what a crazy thing to ask for. But I think to you it would probably sound something like, Father, in spite of all you've done for me, I'd rather have your stuff than have a relationship with you. 
As a matter of fact, I would actually rather that you'd be dead than alive so that I can have your stuff. I'd rather have what I want now, and I don't care that this will be disruptive for you because you're essentially going to have to buy me out to provide the cash value of the amount that I'm going to inherit. That is, those phrases or those ideas is what's packed into the younger son's request here. Completely absurd request, completely out of line. There would, there would be no viable place or understanding or world where somebody would do that. Somebody would actually ask that of their father. It's just completely unbelievable request. Completely unbelievable. It would be for us, let alone for these people at that time. But in spite of this, the father did what his son asked for. I'm imagining he had to pick himself up off the floor after that kind of request. But the story goes on to say that he did what was asked for. He divided his property. And I want to note a few things about that. In this family, there were only two sons, which meant that there was more for each son. The older son would have received a double portion, which means that about a third would go to the younger son. Now, let's just use our imagination a bit here. Assuming the father had a farm and a house and who knows what all else, let's assume that his estate is, a wor- is worth about $1.5 million. And so the younger son runs off with a third of that, a cool 500000 Nice sum of money. Should last you for a bit. Not long after this, it says, and it doesn't give us the time, so that's not, not critical, but not long after this, the younger son leaves for a distant country. And so as we reflect... The younger son essentially did four things here. He essentially wished that his father was dead. He took what was not rightfully his, but what would have been his later on. He intentionally withdrew from all accountability and all responsibility. So he took the inheritance without the responsibility of the inheritance and he abandoned all of the structure and the culture that he had ever known. He essentially wished that his father was dead. He took what was not rightfully his. He intentionally withdrew from all accountability, all responsibility, and he abandoned all of the structure and all of the culture that he had ever known. What happens when you completely uproot someone like that? What happens? Well, we're about to see. But I want to ask the question, why did, he, why did he do that? He deliberately, I believe, set himself up to be able to do whatever he wanted to do. Now, I want to stop for a moment. I want to consider those four things. I want to ask a couple of questions, and I want you to think seriously about this. Have you ever wished that God was dead, that God didn't exist? Have you ever took what was not rightfully yours? Have you ever intentionally withdrawn yourself from accountability and responsibility? Have you ever abandoned all of the structure and the culture that you know? I remember a time in my life when I would have wished these things. No, I, I wouldn't have said that I want God to be dead. But, the, but, but when we live in such a way that indicates that we don't believe that God is going to come back as the final judge. Essentially what we're saying is we don't believe that God is who he says he is. He doesn't have the power that he says he has. 
and he does not exist in the sense that he exists. So I didn't say that I wish God were not real or God were not alive, but I lived in such a way that I did not believe that he was coming back as the final judge. And the irony of that, that is, if you would have asked me, I would have said, sure, he's coming back as final judge. But I didn't live that way. I didn't live out of that. And I specifically remember times in my life when I wish that I could just do whatever I want to do. Just let me alone. I want to do what I want to do, and I want to do it how I want to do it. As an example, I, what if I could just spend all day Sunday doing whatever I want? What if I didn't have to go to church? What if I could just be entertained all day long in front of the television or movie or whatever it is? I could do anything I want from 9 in the morning until 10 o'clock at night and be thoroughly entertained. Video games, you name it. Just imagine. I wouldn't have to be accountable to anyone. I wouldn't have to get dressed. I wouldn't have to take a shower. I wouldn't have to impress anyone, please anyone, consider anyone's feelings. I wouldn't have to talk to anyone. I wouldn't have to be responsible to anyone. Wouldn't that be the ultimate, the ultimate freedom? I don't know if you've had thoughts like that before. How cool would it be if I could just do whatever I wanted to do it, whenever I wanted to do How freeing would that be? But I think we all understand the irony of that statement because what might seem seem like freedom is actually the greatest bondage that there is, and it's a bondage to Satan, a bondage to the being that hates us more than all else. And the Bible is abundantly clear on this. We could look at Romans 6.16. In that verse, it clearly says, His servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Clearly, Paul says in Romans 6, 16, you are the servants of someone. You are the servants of someone. If you think you're living in freedom, you are to do whatever you want. You are the servant of sin. You're the slave of sin. And beyond this, history and our own personal experiences make this clear as clear can be. Overindulgence results in bondage, not freedom. Overindulgence results in bondage, not freedom. And so we can see the result of the younger son's choices as he left all that he had known to do whatever he wanted. And I I think we can understand this in our world today by saying it this way. The first thing that the younger brother did was purchase a one-way flight to Las Vegas. And it was here that the younger brother wastes his money in riotous living. And he is indeed, he lives out the word prodigal. Or we could call it wild living, living completely unrestrained, grossly immoral. And I don't know how long it would take to burn through about 500000 but spending and indulging without restraint would be quite costly. And so the younger brother, in our terms, he spends all of his money on gambling, entertainment, prostitution, vacations, cars, sporting events, concerts, food, and more. You name it, he did it. Zero restraint, like an animal, completely following every whim and wish of his flesh, doing whatever felt good at the moment. Zero thought for the future or for the ramifications of his actions. Whatever he sees and wants, he goes for it. But this is nothing new. He's not the first one to do this. 
This is actually a very common theme all throughout Scripture. We see it again and again and again. We see this pattern all throughout the Bible, all throughout history. And so, in a sense, this parable is yet another example of mankind seeing, coveting, taking, and then the disaster that follows. A couple examples, Adam and Eve see the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They covet what is not theirs, they take it, and disaster strikes. In the story of the golden calf, Aaron sees the gold, he takes it, he makes the calf, and disaster strikes. In the story of Achan, he saw the treasures of the city of Jericho. He coveted what was not his. He took it, and disaster strikes. David saw Bathsheba. He coveted she who was not his. He took her, and disaster strikes. Judas sees the money. He covets it. He takes the life of Jesus into his own hands, and disaster strikes. See, covet, take, disaster. See, covet, take, disaster. See, covet, take, disaster. And on and on and on and on. And each time, the final end result is the same. Disaster. And then it all comes crashing to an end. The parable doesn't say if it was a few months, a few days, a year, several years. The exact time frame, again, is is not super important here. In our terms, the way we understand it, the credit card bill comes due and there's no more cash. And so when this happens, suddenly there's a need to do something different, to get a job just to survive. But there's a problem here because there was a severe famine in the land at this same time, or we might say a severe recession. I don't think we understand the word famine because if we have a famine here, we have plenty of money, we just buy food from somewhere else in the world and we're fine. I don't think we understand. I don't personally understand what that word means. And so in my mind, as I think of this word, I think of a severe recession, difficult to get a job. Suddenly, jobs are hard to come by. In desperation, the younger son accepts the lowest of the lowest possible job, and that is feeding pigs. Smelly, dirty, nasty, disgusting. But above all that, pigs are an unclean animal. And so to protect themselves from defilement, the Jews would not even touch a pig. And so to stoop to feeding pigs was the lowest, most degrading beyond belief. Think in terms of cleaning bathrooms at the dirtiest, nastiest truck stop that you can think of. That's kind of the idea here. Most disgusting job possible. And so... The theme so far through this parable is clear. The prodigal son follows the pattern that we see all throughout Scripture, all throughout history. He sees, he covets, he takes, and in the end, disaster strikes. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says it this way, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. That is, he sees. And then he's enticed, enticed. That is, he covets. And then it says, When lust has, hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. That is, he takes. And sin, when it is finished, ultimately brings forth death or disaster. Common theme all throughout Scripture. But I want to look at verse 17 for a moment. 
because there's something that happens here in Luke 15, verse 17. It's pretty incredible. You could call it the turning point of the story. Verse 17 says it like this. When he came to himself, when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, we might say, he's dirty, penniless, humiliated, hungry. Finally, he comes to his senses. The moment when he realizes that earthly pleasures do not satisfy and that they cost you everything. That moment when he's at the end of himself, he came to himself, he came to his senses. But what's the next step? What are my options? He ponders his next step and he realizes for a moment that even the lowliest servants at his father's house have more abundant food, more than what he has now. A parallel, I believe, that the lowliest, most humble person in the kingdom of God is better off than the most honored in the kingdom of the world. But there's a problem here, and I'm sure he thinks about it. Will he be received back? Would that even be possible? What will his father say? What will his brother say? What will his family say? What will his community say? You see, he's lost it all. He valued his inheritance more than he valued his relationship with his father. So he's lost that relationship. Can probably never be fully mended. He lost all that he owned. And worse than that, he lost a lot of what his father had worked hard for his whole life. But beyond that, his mind and his body are completely destroyed. His mind is twisted with desire for pleasures, gambling, entertainment, and the like. His arms are marked up from drugs. His eyes are bloodshot with drink. His promiscuity and sexual carelessness has ruined any opportunity to win the heart of a respectable wife. And anyone that hears what he has done will surely turn away in disgust. But it's at this point, he has no choice. He has nowhere else to go. He has no other option. And so he reasons to himself in the following way, and it goes like this. I will admit that what I have done is sin against heaven and against my father. And we can see this in verse, verses 18 and 19. I will admit that what I have done is sin against heaven and against my father, against God and against my father. I have lost my right to be a son because of what I have done. And I'm willing to do anything, anything to stay with the father, even if it's a servant, even if I'm washing feet and cleaning the bathrooms. So I think there's three things that I would like us to look at that I believe we can learn from this portion of the story that we've looked at so far. And the first lesson, I believe, is just the utter ugliness of sin. The utter and complete ugliness of sin. Secondly, repentance may not be quite what we think it is. And I'll qualify that in a bit, but I want you to think about that. When you think of repentance, or when you repent, what does that look like? And then thirdly, we'll wrap up by looking at Jesus Christ. So first of all, sin is completely ugly, despicable, 
and sinful. One of the things that I believe that we must militate against in the world that we live in today is the watering down of sin, of the grossness, of the ugliness of sin. Sin is a direct affront against God. Sin is rebellion against God. Unless we get too hard on the younger brother, I'd invite us for a moment to take an in-depth look within this morning. So do that with me. Because, you see, we've all rebelled against God. By our actions and thoughts, and by the way that we've lived, we have wished him to be dead, or at least to be different than what he actually is. We have requested our inheritance now so that we can frivolously spend it doing whatever we want. We have taken what is not rightfully ours. We have desired a life of no accountability and and no responsibility. And we have found ourselves in the past, or perhaps we find ourselves this morning in a place of indulging in pleasures that we know, we know will not satisfy. So where do you find yourself this morning? Do you find yourself here this morning? You wonder if God will ever forgive you. You wonder if your family will ever forgive you. You wonder if your community will ever forgive you. I want to remind us that Satan attempts to package up sin in a neat, neat, cute little bundle. But at the core, sin is gross, disgusting, and revolting. So let's not forget for a moment the utter ugliness of sin. Secondly, repentance may not be quite what we think it is. And I, I, I want you to think from it. What are the first things that come to your mind when you think of repentance or when when you repent, what does that look like? There's a couple of, ex- of examples here I'd like to, to look at. First of all, I want to look back at, this, at the story here and see how the younger son repented. He came to himself. He recognized what he had done. He determined to go to his father, and he even rehearsed what he's going to say. He would say, I have sinned against God and against you. I am not worthy to be your son any longer make me a hired servant of yours. And so I'd like to challenge us and challenge myself this morning. What does our repentance look like? If I say, you know what, I'm just going to do this thing yet, and then I'll repent, and God will forgive me. That's not true repentance. That's not true repentance. That's attempting to reduce God to someone that I can control. I can do whatever I want, and as long as I repent at the right time, God still has to take me back. That's not true repentance. If I say, you know what, I'm just going to repent quickly, just get it over with, God will forgive me, and then I'm good to go, I don't think that's true repentance either. I think rather that's minimizing the sin that I have committed against God. One of the things that we see here in this passage is a deep, what I believe is a deep remorse. And if we, if we were to read the rest of the story, we don't know what happened after the story ends, but I think we can assume properly that the son never went back to the life that he lived before. So there was a deep remorse and a deep understanding of his sin. So what does repentance look like in this story? I have sinned against God. I have sinned against you. God, I don't deserve the joys and blessings of being your son. God, just make me a servant. 
Make me the lowest of the low in your kingdom, because that is better than the highest in the life in the world out there. But I want to wrap this up this morning by looking at Jesus Christ. Because if you're like me, when you look at Scripture and you see that cycle, somebody sees something, they covet it, they take it, and then there's disaster. And that cycle repeats again and again and again and again. And if you're like me, you've seen that cycle in your own life numerous times. You might even be in that cycle this morning or be wondering how to get out. And I don't have a simple way to tell you to get out of that. But one thing that we can look at is the example of Christ. Let's take a moment and see what Jesus did with this cycle. One example, Satan took him up to a high mountain to see the nations of the world and the glory of them. Because Satan understands mankind. He understands this basic thing about mankind. If you can get man to see something and covet it, they will take it, and then there will be disaster. And Satan understood that. And so I believe in Satan's mind, he understands if I, Jesus is a man, if I can just get him to the high mountains and have him see the nations, the kingdoms, and the glory of them, and have him covet it, I got him. It's over. But let's look at what happens here. Satan offered Jesus something that Jesus' flesh wanted, the kingdoms of the earth. And these are the kingdoms that Jesus actually will rightfully take charge of someday. He will rightfully claim them as his own. So if Satan can just get Jesus to see them and Jesus covets them, then he will take them. But Jesus refused to covet. Jesus saw, yes, but he refused to covet and he refused to take. Another time they tried to make Jesus king and the kingship is something else that Jesus' flesh wanted, I'm sure, it would have short-circuited the need for the cross if he would just be the king. And it's something that someday will be rightfully his. But Jesus saw it, he refused to covet it, and he refused to take it because it was not in the Father's time. Additionally, in the garden, Jesus was faced with the cup. Jesus wanted to be spared from what was in the cup, but his response was, not what I will, but what you will. And then one last example, when he was on the cross, I was just reading this again this week. Incredible. Jesus heard the cries of the religious leaders. And I want, I want you to get what they said. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe him. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe him. Well, that would have been the simplest way in the world to get them to believe him, right? It had been easy for him. Jesus could have done that. He could have come down from the cross. And they said they're going to believe him. Again, Jesus saw what was rightfully his, and that is victory over death and glory from mankind. Jesus had the power to come down from the cross, but rather than taking the glory out of the Father's timing, he rightfully, he faithfully endured. He saw, but he did not covet, and he did not take. And so... 
the cycle for Jesus looks a lot different than the rest of mankind. He saw, just like we see, many things that his flesh desired. The Bible makes this, again, makes this abundantly clear. He was tempted like as we are, but he did not covet. He did not covet, and he did not take. And therefore, it ended in victory rather than in disaster. And so as we look at our lives, let, let's remember to look at sin properly and see it for what it really is. Let's not water it down for a moment. Let's compare it with, with what Scripture says and see it for what it really is. Let's look at repentance properly and not use it improperly to just quickly varnish over our sins. Let's use repentance properly. And finally, the reality of the power that Jesus offers us in breaking the cycle. You can read about it in the four Gospels. He broke the cycle again and again and again and again. And one more thing. There's hope for anyone, even the worst sinner. Anyone can repent. And what happens when the worst sinner in the world repents? We'll look at that next time when we look at the character of the Father. Kneel with me for prayer.